1 Kings chapter 6 is where we're going to start this morning. Now, there's two kinds of people, I think. There are people um, who, when you are assembling something, like let's say it's furniture or kid's bike or something like that, there are the kinds of people who take the instructions out first and they actually read line by line, item by item, word by word, what those instructions are and how you assemble something or how you put something together. And then there are other people where you just kind of like eyeball it or use your intuition or you're guided by the force or whatever. There's like, there's, you just have a different way of how you're going to assemble or put something together. If you are the first kind of person, you love the detail, you love the line by line, then 1 Kings chapter 6 is like your dream chapter. You, got, you love this kind of thing. If you are a person like me, this, pers- this chapter is a real challenge for you. Um, so 1 Kings chapter 6, it contains the details surrounding Solomon's building of the temple, which was to be the physical dwelling place of God. And the Bible gives us some details on what that structure, what that building was supposed to look like. So I'm actually going to be reading uh, from a different translation than I normally do, only because the language is a little easier, and I, and I need it. I need it to be easier. So 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1. It was in mid-spring, in the month of Ziv, during the fourth year of Solomon's reign, that he began to construct the temple of the Lord. This was 480 years after the people of Israel were rescued from their slavery in the land of Egypt. The temple that King Solomon built for the Lord was 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, and 45 feet high. The entry room at the front of the temple was 30 feet wide, running across the entire width of the temple. It projected outward 15 feet from the front of the temple, and Solomon also made, a, made narrow recess windows throughout the temple. He built, a com- he built a complex of rooms against the outer walls of the temple, all the way around the sides and the rear of the building. The complex was three stories high, the bottom floor being seven and a half feet wide, the second floor nine feet wide, the top floor ten and a half feet wide. The rooms were connected to the walls of the temple by beams resting on ledges built out from the wall, so the beams were not inserted to the walls themselves. And the stones used in the construction of the temple were finished at the quarry, so there was no sound of hammer, axe, or any other iron tool at the building site. The entrance to the bottom floor was on the south side of the temple. There were winding stairs going up to the second floor and another flight of stairs between the second and third floors. After completing the temple structure, Solomon put in a ceiling made of cedar beams and planks. As already stated, he built a complex of rooms along the sides of the building attached to the temple walls by cedar timbers. Each story of the complex was seven and a half feet high. Who's inspired right now? (laughs) Now, all Scripture is extremely important, and we can certainly learn from all of it. For instance, we can see in this chapter how God is a God of design and intention and not chaos and disorder. But I actually want to take the next two verses, and I want to kind of pull out from them the rest of our time this morning, an important truth, an important reality about God that the temple represents. Uh, We're going to actually watch a quick video that's actually going to help us to kind of understand how the temple fits into the whole biblical story. But look at the next two verses in 1 Kings 6. Then the Lord gave this message to Solomon. Concerning this temple you are building, if you keep all my decrees and regulations and obey all my commands, if you live according to my ways, God's saying, 
I will fulfill through you the promise I made to your father, David. And that, verse 13, if you ever highlight or mark or, or write things in your, in your Bible, circle that word, uh, circle the next kind of phrase here. I will live among the Israelites and I will never abandon my people, Israel. So what we're going to talk about this morning is we're going to talk about God's presence with his people. The manifest or the made known presence of God, the reality of God's living with his people and never abandoning his people. But since this chapter is about the temple, and the temple is a really important element in the scriptures, I want to show just a really quick video that our friends at the Bible Project have done. Uh, so they're going to do in about four and a half minutes what I'm going to try to tease out for another 20 or so afterwards. So pay attention to this video because this will be really good. Mine, I don't know yet. So, but this will give us just a picture of how the temple fits into the whole biblical story. So let's watch this together. If you could go back to the city of Jerusalem during Bible times, the biggest thing you'd see is the temple. This beautiful building was designed by King David and built by King Solomon, and they believed that it was the home of the God of the universe. Wait, I thought God's home was in heaven. Well, the whole point of this earthly temple is that it's the place that overlaps with God's heavenly home. The temple is where God lives and rules all creation as king. That's cool. but. Even Solomon, who built the temple, didn't believe that it could contain the God of the universe, right? Yeah, the building was just a symbol, and it pointed to the fact that all of creation is God's temple. And that's actually what the first page of the Bible, Genesis 1, is all about. Really? It says that creation is God's temple? Well, it doesn't need to say it. The whole story shows it. In Genesis 1, God creates an ordered world out of a dark wasteland by speaking in a series of seven days. Then on the seventh day, God's presence fills creation as he takes up his rest and rule. Similarly, the tabernacle and later the temple were built and dedicated in a series of seven speeches and seven days, after which the priest or king could rest and rule in God's presence. Ah, so all of creation is where God intends to dwell. It's like his temple. Exactly. Now, turn the page to Genesis 2 and we get another portrait of creation. This one focuses in on the land. And in the center of the land is a region called Eden, which in Hebrew means delight. And in the middle of delight, God plants a garden in which God and humanity live together. And that's why the temple was modeled after the garden, filled with imagery of gold and flowers. The menorah symbolized the tree of life. It's the place where God dwells with his people. Oh, got it. And check this out. In the temple, the Israelite priests and Levites were to work and to keep the temple in God's presence. This is exactly the job description given to humanity in the Garden of Eden. So these humans were the first priests. But instead of ruling with God, they wanted to rule on their own terms, and they're exiled from the Garden Temple. And like Adam and Eve, Israel's leaders also wanted to rule on their own terms, and they too were exiled. The temple was destroyed, and this left them wondering, did God give up on Israel? Will God bring about a new creation? Well, the biblical prophets anticipated the day when God would create a new temple with a new priesthood. That's when God's presence would fill all of creation. And when the Israelites returned to the land, they did rebuild the temple. But that temple didn't turn out the way the prophets hoped. 
In fact, later Israelite prophets said that this temple was hopelessly corrupt. So they're still waiting for the ultimate temple. And here we come to the story of Jesus. He said that through him, God's presence and rule was coming into our world in a new way. And he presented himself as a new kind of priest. But Jesus wasn't a priest and he didn't work in the temple. Right. Jesus said that God's presence, his rest and rule was filling the world through his own life, death and resurrection. Jesus was claiming that he was the true temple and this new temple would expand out to include all of creation. That's a really big claim. And it got even bigger. After his resurrection, Jesus said that God's presence would come to dwell in and among his followers so that they would become mini temples. Communities of people where God rests and rules. Exactly. This is the Bible's vision of the church, which is described as a temple. Not a building, but people. Yeah, like when Peter says, you all are living stones built up as a temple for God's spirit to dwell. So at the end of the story, do we ever get a new physical temple? Well, not exactly. What we see is a renewed cosmic temple, just like Genesis 1. And this new creation doesn't need a temple building because through Jesus, all creation is now the place where God rests and rules the world with his people. Okay. So that's where we're going this morning. Let me pray, and then uh, we'll work through this together. Father, we love you. And God, our desire, my desire is for a supernatural awareness of your presence and your power this morning. God, your, your word's very clear um, that, God, it's not by our own strength, it's not by our own might, it's not by our own intellect, it's not by our own will, but it's by your power, God, that anything meaningful is accomplished. So, Father, I'm asking for your spirit. I'm asking, God, that you would move with freedom. God, I pray that we would experience in a very real way, God, your manifest presence among us this morning. That only happens, God, um, by you doing that. So we submit to that, God. I humble uh, myself beneath that, God. I just ask that you would move um, for your fame, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So at the heart of the biblical story, what that video just showed us, is God's presence, the manifest or made known presence of God with his people. The entire story of the scriptures, if the Bible's relatively new to you, is about a God who longs to be with his people. And the Bible shows us, and what we're going to look at this morning, is the lengths and the means and the extent that God will go through to be with his people. And the way that the scriptures represent that the most is through what's described as the presence of God. So we're going to do kind of a flyover of the scriptures as it relates to God's presence with the people, and then we'll apply it to our lives today. If the Bible's relatively new to you, and you'd like to know what the whole story of the Bible is really all about, there's two books that I'd like to recommend to you. Um, one is kind of a deeper dive. It's called The Drama of Scripture. And then another one is a kind of a more condensed version of that. It's called The True Story of the Whole World. They're both written by a man named Michael Goheen. Um, but The Drama of Scripture and then The True Story of the Whole World are 
both texts that a lot of the pastors and leaders within redemption, it's been extremely formative for them. But those would be two very helpful things. All right, so like we're going to start kind of where that video did. In the, in the beginning, uh, which is where the Bible starts, there's a book called Genesis, which literally means beginnings. In the first two chapters, there's this beautiful picture. God creates man and woman, uh, Adam and Eve, and he places them in this garden of delight. And then he gives them instructions on how to cultivate the garden and how to live lives that lead to their flourishing. And the relationship that God has with Adam and Eve is described in such a way that God talks with them and they actually talk back with him and they literally go on walks together through the garden. It's a picture of a perfect relationship. It's what the Hebrews would refer to as shalom or peace or really it means like a a wholeness. And there is honor between man and woman and between them and God and between creation. It's like this woven together piece. And if you know the Bible, you know that that really goes bad in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve, they believe the lie from Satan uh, that you don't need God. You can, in fact, be your own God, and God is holding out on you. Um, You should just go ahead and get yours for you. It's the same lie we all believe today. Uh, And they eat from the tree they were instructed not to, and their rebellion breaks perfect fellowship and the shalom unravels. And the major repercussion of their sin and their rebellion is that they're no longer allowed to be in the manifest presence of God because of his holiness and his goodness. We're talking about the holiness of God. We're talking about the uniqueness of God, the other thanness of God, the one who is high and lifted up is how the scriptures uh, describe him. He dwells in unapproachable light. And so God provides clothing and everything that they're going to need, but he says, you have to leave my presence. You have to leave the garden. This is what's referred to as the fall of mankind. And it starts the question throughout the biblical story, will God be able to be with his people? Can God and man be put back together? How is this possible? Fast forward through nine chapters in the book of Genesis, God shows up to the scene to a man named Abram, and he says to him, I've got a rescue plan, and here's how that plan's going to unfold, Abram. I'm going to bless you and your family, and I'm going to turn your family into a nation that blesses the whole world, and the whole point is so that I can be your God again, and so that you can be my people, and so that we can be together. So God begins to lay out his plan of how he will put man and himself back together. In Genesis chapter 12, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And it sets into motion this plan. It sets into motion the activity of God in our world, and it moves forward to the setting up of the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 40. We saw that in that video. The people of God, the nation of Israel, has been enslaved by Egypt. God rescues them. God takes them from captivity. He leads them during the day by a pillar of cloud. And at night, he leads them by a pillar of fire. But what's interesting is that God still hasn't come to dwell with them. He's kind of serving as like a tour guide in this season. 
So as Exodus draws to a close, God tells Moses, I want to dwell among or I want to tabernacle with my people. So God wants to set up a tent because the people are a nomadic people at this point. They're still going to the place that God has desired for them. And so God wants to set up a tent that's kind of a portable dwelling place for himself and be with his people. So in Exodus chapter 40 is where we see the completion of that tabernacle. Look at what happens in Exodus 40 verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. So they have this moment with Moses. Moses dies. A man named Joshua becomes the leader of the people. They go into the promised land. God defeats their enemies. They set up shop there. And then you begin to work through the Old Testament. And the Old Testament has a particular pattern to it. If you just read through those books, Uh, the people of God, they start to follow God and they will obey his way and they'll obey his commandments for a while. And then they begin to rebel and sin and chase after idols and false and foreign gods. And they grow far, far, far away from God. And then God will send someone to speak to them as his mouthpiece and confront them and remind them of what is true and woo them back or call them back to him. And they will care for the people of God and the people return. But then they start that cycle all over again. And if as you read through the Old Testament, you just see that pattern happen over and over and over and over again, which I know sounds extremely foreign to us because we would never live like that. But these people in the scriptures do. And then we get to where we've been in our series. The people go to Samuel. Samuel was a prophet, so one of these people was a mouthpiece of God. And the people go to Samuel and say, we want a king. We want a king like all the other nations have. We want an army like all the other nations have because we've got power and we've got possessions and we've got stuff and we've got platform and we want to protect that stuff. And we protect that through a king and we protect that through an army. And, and God says, well, I, I, I will be your king and I'll provide and I'll protect like I've done for you for generations. And God says to them through Samuel, he said, if you get a king like everybody else has, they're going to do what that king does to them as well. They're actually going to take from you, and they won't lead you into more freedom, and they won't lead you into more flourishing. They're actually going to enslave you. And Samuel and God are sad about this. If you remember in our text, Samuel's actually really bothered by this. But God says, okay, give him the king. And so they get Saul and then David and Solomon, like we've seen in our series. Saul doesn't do so well. Uh, David has massive issues, even though he's the one that God has in mind. He's the man after God's own heart. But David uh, recognizes God is dwelling in a tent. And David's like, God lives in a tent and I live in a palace. That's not right. And so David says to God, I'm going to build you this huge temple to dwell in. God says, thank you. That honors me. But you're not going to be able to build it. Your son Solomon's actually the one that's going to do that. And that's where we are in our text this morning in 1 Kings chapter 6. So at the end of this chapter, we find out it takes Solomon seven years to build this temple. It's finished somewhere around 953 B.C. And as they dedicate the temple, which is what's going to be covered next week, actually, we read this in 1 Kings chapter 8. It says this, When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord, 
And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Okay, what does that remind you of? We just looked at it in Exodus 40. This is the same thing that happened to Moses. The overwhelming manifest presence of God descends on him, and he's undone. What the Scripture is saying, what God is saying here, is that the temple is not just simply an empty structure for religion. It's filled with the same life-giving presence of God that we see in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. In fact, as you read through the designs of the temple, you're going to find all this garden imagery. There's angels and flowers and fruit, all kinds of stuff because of what God is communicating is that the longing and the desire of his heart is to be with his people in the same way that he was with Adam and Eve in the garden. That's the desire of God. So God arrives, he's with his people in a permanent place in the temple in 953 B.C., And if you don't know the Bible story, what you find out is that the people of God go right back into the cycle that I was talking about earlier. They're super excited about the presence of God. They're super excited about the temple. They throw a big party. Everything is good. And then beginning with Solomon, actually, he leads the people astray because of his multiple wives, and they sin, and they rebel, and they grow far away from God. And God sends them a prophet, and they repent and come back. But the cycle continues until God says, you know what? this just isn't working. So in 592 BC, God sends the prophet Ezekiel, and Ezekiel has a vision from God, and it shows him in the temple, like in 1 Kings 8, except God has moved from the Holy of Holies kind of into the courtyard, and 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 he kind of waits in the courtyard. He's waiting to see if anybody notices, if anybody was going to come pursue him as he begins to leave the temple. Nobody does. And then he leaves the courtyard, and he goes up on a mountain, and he waits The presence of God is outside of the temple now, but he's still kind of around. He's waiting to see, is anybody going to notice? Is anybody going to care that I'm not there? And he waits, and nobody shows up, and his people just aren't desperate for him. And they just keep living in their rebellion. And finally, the vision that Ezekiel gives is that the presence of God just leaves. And there's a pattern over and over and over again in the Scriptures that God desires to be with his people And the people either resist and rebel, or they're just apathetic. And so one of the things that we kind of draw out for ourselves is, where are you this morning? Where are you in terms of a desire or a longing for the presence of God? Because some of you, you might just be flat out resistant to the idea of God and being present with God. Some of us, it could be we're just kind of indifferent apathetic, maybe a heart that's grown cold. The scripture talks about a seed that's choked out by the cares or the desires of this world. That could be some of us. Are you desperate for God? Do you have, do you live out of a, a position, a place where God, I, I, I can't do anything. I can't bring anything, but I'm just desperate for you and your power and your presence in my life. How would you describe your heart this morning? So God says to Ezekiel, I want to be with my people. The people apparently don't want to be with me. So he's like, we're leaving. Four years later, Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon comes in, destroys everything, including the temple. So now there is no physical home, no physical location where God comes to meet with his people. And now they are literally and figuratively lost apart from God. 
About 70 years go by, Daniel opens the scriptures. He reads about the people who go back. Ezra and Nehemiah come on the scene, the priest and the builder. And they rebuild not only the walls, but they also rebuild the allegiance to the Torah, the laws of God, and they start to lay the foundation for the temple. There's a dedication of the house of God. They celebrate. We're back. But guess what? God's not there. And God doesn't show up to fill the second building of the temple. And in Nehemiah, the old people who are there at the beginning, they're weeping because they know what it's like to have the presence of God with them. And what the scholars will say about this part of the Bible is that there is a, the absence is meant to create a, a longing, that God is looking for his people to long for him. Will God be the most important thing to them? So another question that comes out to us, what is it that you're longing for? What is it that you're desiring with great deep desire? It's the kind of longing uh, that people who love each other when they're apart for uh, some time, they long to be put back together. It's the longing that like a kid would have at Christmas morning, like that kind of eager anticipation and that desire. It's the longing that we have for football season to start, only to realize that your team is garbage and you wish you never had to watch them again. <laughs> Sorry, I'm a Bucks fan. I'm working through some stuff. So, <laughs> What is it that you're longing for? Your mind and your heart, what are, they, what are they fixated on? And if you're honest, with the presence of God, an experience of the presence of God, would it even crack the top three on what you're longing for? Because I have to be really honest, I wrestled with God over this when I knew that this was what I was going to be teaching. And I had to be honest before the Lord and say, God, I don't always have your presence at the top of my list. How can I preach on the presence of God when I don't have that kind of desire for the presence of God? But God is gracious and kind, full of mercy, compassionate, steadfast, and faithful love. He's mindful of our weakness and our frame. He knows that we are dust. So the question is not meant to condemn us this morning, but it's meant to stir up an assessment of our hearts. What are you longing for? What do you desire? Is the presence and the power of God in your life on that list? Because we all have all kinds of good things that we want to see happen in our lives. We have all kinds of good things that we want to see happen in our careers and our families and life for our kids. The question is, is the presence of God the ultimate longing? So after four years, God shows up and through Haggai, he makes a promise. He says, in a little while, in the book of Haggai, he says, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land, and I'm going to shake all the nations. And what is desired by all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, the Lord says. And Haggai is saying there's a fulfillment coming, and it's going to be fulfilled in a few ways. One, Jesus will show up. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. But Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. 
She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. And Matthew gives us an important part of information there, which means God with us. In the Bible, introductions are very important. Jesus will be the Savior of the world. That's how he's introduced. And his name will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's his name. God with us. He's literally tying Matthew 1 all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2. The whole plan the entire thing that God has been up to in human history, it's God being put back together with his creation and what God will go through and what God will do to be with his people. Matthew's trying to trigger you to think about Genesis 1 and 2, God's desire to be with you. John, who is one of Jesus' best friends, when he sits down and starts to describe the life of Jesus, in his opening words, he says this. He says, the, the word, the, the logos, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. In, in, in the Greek, this word dwelling, Jesus has made his dwelling among us. It's the exact same word, the exact same idea that you get in Exodus chapter 40 with the tabernacle. Literally, God has come to tabernacle with his people in the person of Jesus Christ. John is saying what you need to know about Jesus is that God has come to be with his people. I don't know what you, what you think about God. I, I know in a room like this or if you're watching online, there's all kinds of different thoughts or ideas or pictures or characters about God. Maybe you think that he's just angry or he's disappointed or he's just, he's just over you. He doesn't have anything to do with you. He doesn't want anything to do with you. He's too busy. Maybe he's otherwise occupied. Or maybe, maybe your feeling about God is that you're really just too much of a mess you're too far gone. You've made too much of a wreck of something in your life that, that you're not even on his radar, that he, he doesn't even have a desire to be with you. The testimony of the scriptures is that God has done everything, including putting on flesh and skin and bone and taking on all the inconveniences of humanity, but also all of the pain and the suffering to be with you. And one of my favorite stories in the scriptures, uh, and I was reflecting on it this week, I was actually listening to somebody who was talking about the story, and there are some things that struck me uh, like never before, but in John chapter 2, uh, Jesus is beginning his ministry. Now remember, Jesus came to planet earth to save the world. That's what he's here for. Uh, but he goes to a wedding uh, with his mom. So if you think like, I've got a really important thing to do, save the world, but yet I'm going to stop off and go to this wedding. And in the ancient near East in these times, uh, a wedding wasn't like a one-night event or a one-day event. These were week-long events, and they were just big parties and festivals. And at this wedding, uh, Jesus' mother, Mary, comes to him and says, Jesus, you have to do something. You have to help. Um, we're all out of wine, which is very important at a wedding. 
And Jesus, and it might sound kind of rude if you read the story, but he, he basically says, I don't know what that has to do with me. This is not really my time. It's not really what I came here for. I really didn't come from the water and the wine thing. But yet, Jesus gives instruction on what to do. He said there are these huge uh, jars that they had. They hold like 60 gallons of water, and they were for different kind of purification, ceremonial kind of things that they would do. And he says, okay, go get those jars of water. And so they do, and they bring them. Jesus changes it. They take it to the, to the steward who's kind of like overseeing the whole, he's like the wedding coordinator overseeing, he tastes it. And then he goes to the person who's the groom and he says, okay, nobody ever does this. Normally, uh, you serve uh, the, the good wine kind of first, and then after everybody has had too much wine, then you break out the box wine. Uh, but you did it in the reverse. Nothing against box wine necessarily, but uh, you did it in the reverse. And I'm struck by that story for, the, for this reason. I'm like, one, like, why did Jesus go to that wedding? Because he knows that weddings are important. He knows that celebrating the things of life are important. Why does he mess around with this wine? Because he knows that good food and good drink are important. We, we have this idea about spirituality that it's disconnected from all of life. Like there's a spiritual thing and then there's like a, we might say like a secular thing, you know, but, but they don't really kind of cross over. But what Jesus is showing us here, and here's the point, is that for him, it's massively important to enter in to all of life, to enter in into all of what humanity is, the things we celebrate, the things that are good, the things that we are enjoying, the things that make us smile, the things that fill our bellies, but also to enter into the painful things and the things that make us sad and the things that make us weep. Jesus wants to be with us in every part of us. And that's what John's saying. So Jesus comes and he lives a life and he dies a brutal death on the cross and he's raised up from the dead. And then his followers have this amazing thing happen to them. So after Jesus is raised from the dead, he spends 40 days on earth after his resurrection. He ascends to heaven and his people, his followers, they're really not quite sure what to do. Jesus has gone on to heaven, but there's still a lot of turmoil. And so they kind of lock themselves in a room and they begin to pray and they're fasting. And in Acts chapter 2, this amazing moment happens. The day of Pentecost came and they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house that they were sitting in. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each one of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Okay, remember back to how does God show up at Exodus at night? How does he lead them? By a pillar of what? Fire. God leads through fire. And what's happening here is that tongues of fire, literally little pillars of fire, are not just leading people, but they're coming to reside on the individual followers of Jesus and filling them. And now all of human history will change because now God's presence fills the earth, not in a building, not in a tent, but in his people. Jesus is in his people, the church. So if you are a Christian, you brought Jesus to church with you today. Thank you. 
That's the testimony of the Bible, that as a follower of Jesus, you bring the presence of Jesus, you bring the presence of God with you. When you go to work, presence of God there at work. When you go to school, presence of God. The soccer game, when you're screaming on the sidelines like I do, presence of God is there. When you go to the meeting, when you go to close the deal, when you go to the nail salon, when you go to the gym, wherever you go, God is with you, in you actually living in you. The spirit of the living God is in you. Sometimes when people hear something incredibly, they'll like holler or shout or like they say, amen. There's something. There's something that like lets you know that they just heard something that's like amazing. Sometimes that happens. The Spirit, Christian, the Spirit of the living God is in you. What's even more incredible is that it appears that we need to be filled all the time because in Acts chapter 4, they pray again. The place where the meeting was was shaken, and the Bible says they're filled with the Holy Spirit so that they could speak the word boldly. So apparently, you and I, we leak. And we're not that different from the followers of God that we see in the Old Testament. I made a joke about that, but that's really who we are. We cycle through obedience and idolatry and returning and rebelling. And it looks like it happens in the New Testament as well, too, because there's about eight different times in the book of Acts where the Bible says they were filled with the Holy Spirit to do the works that God called them to do. The Apostle Paul would pick up on this reality in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred and you, together, Together are that temple. So we've gone in this biblical story from a garden to a tent, to a temple, to Jesus, to the people of God, and now the presence of God dwells in the midst of the people of God. And Paul is taking that truth, and he says, when you wake every day, know that the presence dwells within you. And if that's true, then it matters how you treat your body. And it matters how you treat everybody around you. Because you are little temples that God has decided to set up in and to carry his presence into the world. And because God is with you, that means the presence and the power of God is where you are. And that means that amazing things can happen because God is with you. Is that landing on anyone? Wherever you go, Christian, the presence and the power of God is available. The water into wine power, the walk on water power, the storm calming power, the resurrecting power of God is in you. There are so many testimonies that we'll hear of people who they'll be in a business meeting or they'll be doing some kind of presentation and they'll start to share testimony of what God has done in their life. And I, I get these texts and I get these stories. I actually really like to get these a lot where someone's just like, you're not gonna believe what happened. I was in this meeting. Jesus came up. I shared my story. This person either came to faith or they said, I've been away from God for a long time and God brought me back or there was something happened. We have moments of prayer we have moments of prayer where people will come with cancer or come with other diseases and we'll lay hands on them and we'll pray and God will heal them. We have marriages that are restored. We have people who are saved, people who are rescued because you know why? Anything is possible when the kingdom of God breaks in and hope returns. It is not us. It's the power of God within us. So please, let's not get that twisted. 
It is always God. It's always the power of God in us. The early church understood this. The early church sat under the power of the Roman Empire and the Roman military might. But they did not desire political power. They did not desire military power because they knew that in them was the presence and the power of the resurrected Lord. When we will live like that and lead like that and serve like that and humble ourselves underneath that, we will not put our hope in political power. We will not put our hope in financial power. We will not put our hope in military power. We will not put our hope in any other power because the presence and the power of God is in us. And when the story ends, the story ends in Revelation chapter 21 with this celebratory shout. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, exclamation point, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. You have people on planet earth who don't want to spend time with you. The holy, infinite creator, alpha, omega, God says, I want to be with them. That's how I want to finish the whole story, with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. The bookends of the scripture, God with his people, God with his people. And the entire arc of the scriptures is everything that God has done to make that possible. And you might be in, in despair and distress over sickness or illness. You might be drowning in a mountain of financial debt. You might have a marriage or a family that is falling apart. And some of those things do take a lifetime to be restored. But the promise for those of us who believe is that one day they will all pass away. And there will be no more tears and no more mourning and God will be with you, and you will be with him, and he will be your God, and you will be his people. It's the promise of the scriptures, the promise of the presence of God. Okay, so real quick, what do we actually do with this? There's two things. There's two things I want to give you as kind of action items that you could take away with you. How, what do we actually do about this? One, seek the presence of God by spending time at the feet of Jesus. Seek the presence of God by spending time at the feet of Jesus. John Piper writes an article about this. I'm just going to read through real quick what he says because he says it better than me. He says, presence is a common translation of the Hebrew word face. Literally, we are to seek his face. But this is the Hebraic way of having access to God. So to be before his face is to be in his presence. God's manifest conscience, trust his presence is not our constant experience. There are seasons where we become neglectful of God and give him no thought and do not put trust in him. And we find him unmanifested, that is, unperceived perceived as great and beautiful and valuable by the eyes of our hearts. His face, the brightness of his personal character, is hidden behind the curtain of our carnal desires. 
That is why we're told to seek his presence continually. And both the Old and the New Testament say it is a way of setting of the mind and heart on God. It is a conscience, conscious, sorry, fixing or focusing of our mind's attention and our heart's affection on God. The seeking is the conscious effort to get through the natural means to God himself, to constantly set our minds towards God in all our experiences, to direct our minds and hearts towards him through the means of his revelation. Happens through times in prayer, sometimes in times of solitude. The heavens declare the presence of God, declare who he is. Time with God's people, time in his word, through the preaching of the scriptures. So seek the presence of God by spending time at the feet of Jesus. And then lastly, and we're done with this, and the band can come up, seek the presence of Jesus by spending time washing the feet of others. Seek the presence of Jesus by spending time washing the feet of others. Brian Berger is our pastor over Next Gen uh, Ministry, so everything from birth up through our young adult college ministry, uh, and recently through a Redemption Loves project and through the city of Chandler, they were matched up, and they took about 60 youth uh, to do some kind of improvements around the city, and so there was one group that went to go clean up some alleyways, and then there was another group uh, that went to the home of Fred and Mary Bean, uh, and they were going to paint their house and do some things there, so I think we got a couple pictures of, uh, of some of them, so that's Kendrick and some of the group, I think that might have been a group that did the alley, and then there's a couple more pictures uh, that we have of some of the other stuff. There's a, there's a kid on the roof, which is pretty unsafe. Um, we have that. There's more people on the roof. This is good. Uh, and then uh, I think that's a picture of the whole group there. So uh, they went to Fred and Mary's house to be able to do some kind of painting. Well, the night before they were supposed to go, um, Mary suffered uh, uh, what they thought was a stroke, and she had some pretty significant strokes, and she was I'm admitted into ICU awaiting some surgery, and so Fred called called Brian, and he said, listen, my wife's in the hospital. I'm sorry, I wasn't able to prepare the house to get it ready for painting, so I don't know if you guys should still come. And Brian says, no, we're, we're definitely going to come, but we're also going to just kind of mobilize our church and mobilize our youth to begin to pray for you and to pray for Mary. And it just gave them an incredible opportunity and privilege to be able to pray for Fred and Mary and do the work. So the kids finished the house. Mary's health actually began to improve over the next few days, and they stayed in contact with Fred over the next few days uh, to check on Mary to see if there was anything else they could do. While they were there, they actually noticed that Fred's pool wasn't very clean and kind of needed some work. So another one of our members uh, went there and actually cleaned their pool and took care of their pool and got to meet Fred. And the thing that Fred kept saying is, is thank you, you don't even know us but your church has shown such compassion towards us and the prayers of your church have been effective in healing my wife. And Brian wrote this to me. He goes, he goes, obviously, I'm not just trying to boast in our youth ministry, although I know Brian, he's extremely proud of them. But he said, this is Christ dwelling in a people doing Jesus stuff. He's like, Teenagers have a reputation for always taking and not thinking about anybody else but themselves. But he said, when Jesus is in teenagers, they can be known for compassion and service and love and mercy. And then Brian wrote me this line. He's like, I want the unbelieving world to wrestle with 
the Jesus in us, not just the stuff that we do. My prayer in this is that God would not let us be a church that does not experience or work out of or live out of the presence and the power of God. Church, we can be known for a lot of things. We could be known for our generosity where we're sending filters to places like Haiti or we're painting houses in our own city. We can be known for our pulpit and our preaching and they rightly handle the word of God. We can be known for our amazing worship and singing and music and sound. But when we stand before God, is that really what we're going to hold up? God, weren't you impressed with our preaching? Weren't you impressed with our musicianship? Weren't you impressed with our worship songs? God's like, well, I wrote the whole Bible. I'm the greatest preacher there ever was. I invented music. I'm constantly surrounded by the greatest worship of all time. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I got it. Well, well, look at all the good things that we did. And Jesus is like, yeah, that's very important to me. If you remember, I actually fed a lot of people and healed people. But what we would say is, God, we actually are bringing nothing except a humble, desperate desire for you. That's my prayer, that we would be known as a people who desperately and earnestly seek the presence and the power of God. It's one of the things uh, that we're reminded of every week when we have this moment of communion. There's two elements in this container here, the bread and the cup, the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. You see, um, there is only one way for us to be put back together with God. We couldn't do enough. We couldn't earn it. We could not impress God enough. We couldn't even say we're sorry enough. There had to be a perfect sacrifice. Blood had to be shed. And it was the blood of Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. The only way that we can be put back together is through Jesus and Jesus Christ alone. His perfect life, his finished work on the cross, the power of his resurrection. That's it. If that is your confession this morning, your faith alone is in the person of Jesus, then these two elements are for you to eat and to enjoy and to remember and to celebrate the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. If you're with us today and you've yet not taken that step of repentance and faith, uh, if your hope uh, in this life or the next is in something else or someone else, then it really would not make a lot of sense for you to take this. You would just be kind of going through the motions. It's totally unnecessary. But the invitation this morning, the invitation from the scriptures, the invitation from God himself is that God desires to be with you. And the only way that that could happen is to put your faith, your hope, your trust in what he has done for you to make that possible. So there's a moment for you to step into that to live out of that this morning. So eat and drink in remembrance and celebration of our God.